Kia and welcome. I'm Boris Lamont and you're listening to the New Zealand Wine Podcast. In this episode we're speaking with Nick Mills from Ripon in Wanaka in central Otago of New Zealand. Nick is fourth generation on the land which has been growing wine now for over 30 years. So right now let's go have a chat with Nick. Uh, welcome Nick, great to have you on the Wine Podcast show. Great to be here. Thanks for um, taking time out. So um, we're speaking to yes, Nick sir. over Skype. So um, hopefully the audio comes through okay for all our listeners. So yeah, Nick, um, your family's been on the land for uh, a few generations now. Is that right? Yeah, well, fourth. Well, I'm, and my siblings are fourth generation. The fifth's coming up pretty quick now. Yep. Hundred and six yep. years this year. Uh, seven, 107 years. It was nineteen twelve. Our great grandfather bought the land. Nineteen twelve. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So gone past the um, gone past the the, the um, centenary. Yeah. Yeah. Two thousand and twelve. Yeah. Special so that, year. The, and, and that must be you know there's a few family owned vineyards around New Zealand, but not not a heck of a lot, and certainly um, probably not a lot with that um, age on them and that um, longevity and within the family. Yeah, it's it's um, I don't, like there was in terms of Central Otago, with I think the um, of the first five were the were the the only one that still exists from in its original form, and I, and I don't say that with a lot of pride. I, I, it's mostly sadness because there were some really you know amazing um, people and characters that were involved in those in those first vineyards, and I've got really strong memories of them, but. Yeah, it's, um, it's we, we're still here. Yeah, 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 and um, yeah. So, d- what, what's the um, what what was it? So it was your um, how how far are we going back now? Four generations. So it was your great grandfather, yeah, great grandfather. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And it was his grandmother was Emma Rippon. So the name comes back from a couple more generations from that. But right. um, he was Percy Sargot, and he, he uh, Dunedin. Um, Dunedin uh, businessman, merchant, um, and he bought Wanaka Station in, in 1912, obviously fell in love with this place, had a few other projects around the around the region as well. Mm-hmm. It, so the name Rippon is, you know, sort of down in Cromwell as well, it's same 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 guy, same family. Right, yep, okay, and so that was a um, sheep station back then? Uh, yes, oh, I wouldn't really... Um, define it um, as right. any sort of station. A station in those days, they were much more into pastoralism, which is, um, you know, trying to seek out the potential of, of a piece of land for any type of culture. So there was, a, mm. there was, wasn't like, you know, farming where you actually know what you're, what you're doing. Um, and, and you come in with a set of goals and, and try and, you know, convert a, convert a farm or try and um, implant a, a culture um, on top of it. I think it was a lot more, um, not passive, but perhaps experimental than that, where you've got, um, you know, a very isolated piece of land. You couldn't get diesel up into the up into the hinterland here, and uh, the whole place was run by horses. So you had to grow feed for the horses, and obviously grow feed for the humans as well, which was the local community was all the workforce, and and uh, so there was gardens and orchards and mixed crops and and uh, and mixed animals and, and inventive ways of using water to get it around, but through water wheels for irrigation and electricity and stuff. So really like a, a self-sustaining farm unit, even though it was a, you know, um, a farm. So I wouldn't have said it was a, a, a beef or, or, or sheep or anything. It was, a, it was a more of a sort of a dynamic farm unit trying to understand what the land could, could produce. Right, right. Okay. And that, and that so part of that um, way of being, way of thinking, um, exploration is what led to, 
um, the vines being trialled in the first place? Yeah, yeah. Well, Rolf, um, our dad, who was the third generation on the farm, grew up in that milieu. He was born in 1923. Um, uh, so he grew up between Dunedin and, and here in Wanaka and spent a lot of time, um, you know, just trying to understand the the potential of this land, as I say, for any different types of culture. And it wasn't until a bit later in his life, uh, the early 70s, where he was able to start experimenting with vinifera, with, with grapevines. But um, the idea came, I think, well, our family law has it, that it was sort of on the way back from the Atlantic. Um, he was in the Navy in the Second World War and, and the submarines, and he came back from the Atlantic via Portugal and saw that there was schist in the soils and the in the in the vines um, uh, in, in the vineyards that had been producing wines that he'd grown up with, as, as even though he grew up in sort of depression and prohibition, he was in a family that had wine on the table as a as a kid. So, um, and, um, we we assumed that um, the Porto, or, you know, Port from the Douro Valley would have been one of those. And so, I think linking those together um, in, early in his life sort of gave him the idea that viticulture might be uh, possible down here. Right. Right. Okay. And did did he have to try quite a few different spots around the Around the station, or, um, or did he I think of... his dream. He was always set within the Ripon Hill, which is which is the the hill we're on, and it's sort of got sort of um, slopes on all sides. So, and, and so it's very clear that the north north facing slopes were probably the ones better suited to viticulture. Mm-hmm. Um, but so not so much in terms of sites, but certainly adapting the culture to that site. So um, even though there was, uh, you know, most of the uh, all of the um, viticultural opinion of the time, um, even the government, um, there were government warnings um, saying that viticulture wouldn't work this far south. He, he despite all that, had been taking um, uh, detailed uh, um, climate um, uh, data and also uh, just observing the land in terms of how it works. Um, and despite what everyone was saying, he was convinced that something would work down here. And uh, I guess that's the the first part of of that was you know we did have land and as farmers our capital was wrapped up in land so um, it was to see whether they could release part of that capital um, you know i.e. sell off a, a section of the farm to be able to invest into viticulture it took a bit of a leap of faith and to give themselves the 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 understanding of of what it meant to be wine growers we went off to. France for a year when, when I was seven with, when I was with my two sisters and we went to primary school over there for a year while Rolf and Lois learnt an aircraft and then came back to Wanaka, uh, that was in 1981, so they had been experimenting since the early 70s, but the 1982 was when the first commercial block went in and just to finish on that you're you're talking about um, you know different sites and, and I said it was more about the varieties and the plant material, so there was like 25, 30 different you know, um, either either um, uh, clones or um, or varieties that went in at that time, and mm. and we were taking over time selecting uh, the best performing, or at least the most the one the vines that were showing themselves the most comfortable in that environment, the ones that were issuing the most balanced fruit, were getting selected off those original cuttings and put through our own nurseries, and then planting out parcel by parcel over the next three decades, and selecting down to the six varieties that we have today. Right, right, okay, yeah. So that's quite quite a bit of um, quite a bit of experimentation then, but um, yeah, but all yeah, all planted yeah. around that all planted around that um, slope where you are, which is yeah. it, you know certainly um, a quite a remarkable quite a remarkable site, and uh, you know yeah. you see a lot of people um, posting 
you know, on social media as it being one of the um, pretty special <laughs> yeah. places for um, Instagram for generation and all. That's right. That's right. Well, I uh, think it, for us, it's uh, it's important to make the link there of, um, you know, the, the everything that you see and you look at look at that as as being attractive to the human eye or even the the the, um, the camera lens is is, you know, humans have coexisted with grapevines since since they since they became homo sapiens essentially is we weren't we weren't monkeys anymore we were bipeds and instead of climbing up the trees and and getting the fruit from the top it was you know it was we waited for it to drop and we would propagate it at, at our height and grapevines you know they started um their evolution as being forest plants and and uh, growing up trees but we propagated them at our own height as humans and took them west um from transcaucasia where they started out and um, took them west along with human culture and and uh, and so we got a um, vitis vinifera as we know it today is very much a human a human plant it's been propagated over many many um, uh, millennia um, with along with humans and so wherever we feel most comfortable that's to say looking down a north facing slope towards a body of water perhaps with some mountains to protect us in the background and um, you know looking towards the sun this is where vines feel most comfortable as well. So mm. all of the, all of those things that people like to take a photo photo of and and uh, and, um, and see feel as somewhere of comfort for for the human eye is also what makes it so lovely for viticulture as well. Yeah, right. Okay, that's that's nice. And um, I suppose all those components too go to have an impact on. Um, you, you know your your little microclimate down there as well. I expect with Absolutely, the you know, with the yeah. water being close by the mountains. You know, the well, certainly the mountains is the far, first part. That's the proximity to the main divide is really the main driver of our of our um, of our. That's more of a, um, a you know a, 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 the climate um, uh, in a, as a macro in a macro um, sense is you know, all of the weather's coming around underneath Australia, you know, the roaring 40s and hitting these three three to, you know, 3,000 metre peaks straight out of the ocean. And so it condenses very quickly there and dries out as it comes across central Otago. But where we are within central, um, we are the most temperate part. We're not as wet, uh, not as cold, not as dry, um, certainly not as hot either as the rest of central. And so that's that temperance and the lake obviously accentuates that as well. Mm, 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 okay. And... Um and you're seeing that sort of come through in the varietals um, that you've got there. So how how would you describe um, the the influence of the you know, you know the tuar, the location, the climate, and mm. and its impact on the you know the six varietals that you're that you're working with yeah. at the moment? <laughs> that that that's a that's obviously gives way to a pretty large yes, um, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, really large subject. But um, generally speaking, um, with that temperance. Um, we have um, we don't generally have as much climatic flesh, if you like, on top on top of the wines. That's to say, um, you know, diurnal range gives um, fruit density and, um, uh, and 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 mass, generally speaking, in wines. And although we've in Central have learned to work with that um, as a region, uh, Ripon's never really been we've never really been able to produce wines with of, with of a lot of volume. Um, and that works, you know. Some people enjoy wines that are have a little bit more flesh in them. Uh, our vineyards never really been able to do that. It's much without that climatic flesh sort of on top of it. We, our wines are much more defined by sort of precision and detail and articulation of tannins, if you like. And mm-hmm. um, so it's not. Uh, it's just it's a slightly different um, uh, terroir, if you like. Uh, the mm-hmm. the obviously the other part of that is. 
um, the schist uh, gravels that we have, and certainly in Tinker's Field, this this is all about um, uh, compressed power. So schist, wherever it is in the world, whether it's in the Doro Valley, where Rolf first saw it, or Prerat, or Collier and Banyuls, um, if you go further north, you might find it in in Roussillon and maybe the certain parts of the Beaujolais, you'll go all the way up to sort of slate more, more metamorphic soils in, in Germany and Alsace. Um, these are, you know, lots of different varieties, different climates, different cultures, different um, modes of culture, so different vine spacings and different varieties as well, different um, uh, winemaking techniques with different residual sugars or elevage. But wherever it's done well, I believe wherever you see schist done with accuracy, it's about compressed power. So that's to say um, power not in volume or mass, but in, in, in compression and sort of um, uh, a sort of a planar or, or linear sort of approach to the tannins. They sort of send uh, it's, its journey rather than um, volume. And that's certainly what we see in our, in, in our wines and, and, when, and, and the wines that we most appreciate. Mm. Mm, okay. Okay. And um, do you do you see sort of a change from um, year to year? Um, and have you seen any change in sort of more of a you know you know obviously it's year to year fluctuations just with whatever happens um, during that previous twelve months? But have you also seen any other change over the last maybe sort of five to ten years? And 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 what's happening and what and the impact that it has on what you're producing? Um, or not? Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, yes, is the short answer. That I, I guess uh, what you um, we are, even though we're a pseudo continental climate, we like to say a continental climate, but we're not a continent, obviously. So it, it is. We are we're like a plume of fresh air um, uh, out the backside of the of the Southern Alps, and so we are on a sort of a, a pseudo continental climate, being protected from the east and the south as well. Um, however. Uh, um, we are still a, an island in a massive body of water, the largest body on the planet, body of water on the planet, and so we are still subject to the vagaries of um, massive, huge air masses um, moving around. And so our vintages do vary, and, and we obviously celebrate that um, from from year to year. We we see different things, and and that's just something we like to we we, we accentuate in, the, in our wines. Mm. Um, in terms of uh, what we've seen over time. Uh, that's probably more about vine age. So um, wines, vines, as they grow older, they get um, you know get more purchase um, in their land, and so can issue more reflective, more accurate reflections of that land. That's to say, root penetration and root tortuosity. That's to say, the, the amount of uh, root mass in contact with the rock itself is increases over time, and this drives more energy into the seed and into the dry matter of the skins, and so you get a lot more when in young vines. Wines are generally def- defined by perhaps fruit and flower and and the exuberance of youth of of the, those those sort of aspects, the attraction aspects. But as time goes on, they get more into the precision and detail and texture and shape and feel of the wine, which is the phenolic matter that's you know becoming more and more noble and 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 gives you the opportunity to extract that material into the wine. So in essence, you get you go from a sort of a fruity. Um, uh, attractive uh, and daring sort of wine into one that's much more complex and is changing over time and, and has a lot more structure and perhaps um, uh, articulation and, and detail in the wines. Mm. And, and I suppose it must be exciting for you to work with just to see that um, 
see that that change and that evolution, if you like. Oh, absolutely. As, as you, as you oh, can, that's yeah. that part of the, the the beauty of it all. Yeah, especially mm. when you're talking about vines that are on their own roots as well. I, you know, they've got a Vitis vinifera has got much more articulate root hairs than riparia. It's just from where it evolved, and and that um, uh, it's the anatomy of it. And you've got um, so. You know, a, a lot again, a lot more contact, um, a lot more purchase on the land. Certainly, we've, we've, we have both um, about eighty percent of our vines on 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 their own roots, but um, between the twenty between that and the twenty percent that are on American rootstock, the difference in terms of getting it off irrigation and and um, the the less need for support, human support is, is just is huge. Right. Right. Okay. And. Um and maybe just um, sort of skipping over to to your story, you were obviously involved with um, from a very young age. You saw what was going on around you, and you went with your uh, parents over to to France mm. to live for a while. So, wine's always been around for you. Yeah, no, yeah. it's always been part of what we do. Um, yeah, you know, I don't know if I had too much of a choice in <laughs> in all of that, but um, well, I, of course I did. I, I uh, we we. But what what happened for us was that we fell in love with with a piece of land, and it's the same with what happened to our great grandfather, and um, and people are still fall in love with Wanaka nowadays. It's a, it's a lovely place, and um, but what Rip in itself, um, uh, we we grew up on it. Um, we've farmed it as, a, it as having its own individuality, its own sense of self. Rip in for us is yes, it's a place. But it's and it's a very well defined place, but it's also an individual that we maintain a relationship with. So, you know, part of our working day might start with, you know, what would what would Rip and ask of us in this scenario if we're trying to make a decision on it. All that to say, in terms of growing up with it, it was um, something that we fell in love with, and it was trying to allow that it's the, it's trying to allow that land to maintain its potential. In our case, through viticulture, but it could be through anything. Um, Trying to maintain its potential over time, and as a, as a pastoral um, piece of land, and its and its identity as well, mm. it's trying to trying to allow it to express itself um, to its potential. So, all of that um, is what was what drew us towards viticulture in the first instance, I think, and um, and um, that's what what happened to us. It wasn't for us, for for me or my sisters who are, and and brother who, who and my wife. All of us are, and my mum were all still working on the property, but you know I I think it was the love of the land first, and then trying to find ways to to help the land to 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 maintain our relationship with the land and for to, for the land to maintain its potential and, and its identity. So that's what came first. We didn't we didn't come from being burgundy nuts or you know wine enthusiasts necessarily um and then try and find somewhere where we could um, maintain that love of, of wine it was the other way around it was a love of a piece of land first and then adapting our culture to 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 the land right yeah that's that's nice and so almost allow it to express itself and into what it could produce what you could yep. what you could help it with Yep, yeah. it was sort of a circuitous part. You know, it sort of started out like that. That's what was our school holiday job when we were kids was was um, taking those cuttings and stuff and working in the vines. But I think all of us felt like we needed to do something first. Um, I, I, my brother's a mechanic. Um, my sister Sarah started out as a chef. Um, Charlie, well, she pretty she got into horses. Um, you know, uh, um, yeah. Joe, she's more sort of into um, literature, and um, and but we all ended up back in wine, 
and um, through I, I went I started out as a skier and, and tried to get to the Olympics in '98, but that was um, uh, uh, no. You went quite cut, um, you went quite far with that. Went you? quite far with mm. that, but there was cut off eventually, and that sort of redirected me back into into wine. Yeah, um, and then I did guess you always have that of, sense that you would that you would come back? Huh, to? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I don't. I I. I I've, I asked myself that question. I'm not really. I think so. I, I sure. certainly Rudy. Um, uh, um, when Rudy was on the property, he was uh, Rudy Bauer from Quartz Reef. He was um, winemaker at Ripon in 1990, 91, 92. So I was in my late teens at that time, and and I think just working with him saw that it was perhaps part that you know that I could you know, fill up a good part of my life doing doing that. It was something that was kind of dynamic and had lots of different aspects to it. I, what Rolf and Lois were doing was just, you know, just your parents, you know, and so it's not really, well, it, it, later on you figure out how cool it was and, and how amazing it was, what what the job that, that, they were, that they were doing. But as a teenager, you just think that's what they do and, yes. that's what, yes. and you don't really question why they're doing it. So it was probably Rudy that gave me the idea that it, probably could be something that I could end up in but I had to get the skiing and the in the mountains and all of that out of the way first and yeah well they're right was, there aren't they yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. and, and so you've um, talked about the family and, and all being involved so do you have how does that work do you work is it quite collaborative do you have set roles that you've you've sort of um, found your way into or um, how does that sort of work working working together and um, making it all happen uh, yeah, uh, so it's it is a um, we can't we're all kind of polyvalent. That's to say, we don't we have sort of our rough areas of expertise, if you like, what we've been trained in or what we're, we're what what our skills are. Um, but we're all we all understand the um, you know the the job at hand, um, and that's not and I, that, that that extends far past the family. We have five, I think, five full time crew, and some of them in with us over a decade and, and, um, you know, everyone has done work in all aspects pretty much of the farm. That's to say making compost, compost and growing soil, um, all the way through to the viticultural aspects, the wine, um, making aspects and, um, the winery sort of part of the product, that's that end of the production all the way through to sales and, and, and representing, um, Ripon and, and, and the public as well. So it's, it is a, it is a really polyvalent sort of team. Uh, yeah, I think that's something that we we value a, a lot. It's we don't sort of grow grapes and hand them on to a winery who hand, makes the wine and then hands it on to the sales team. And it's it is a we, it's a it's a craft that we see that is complete from soil through to through to sales. Yeah, yeah. And any um, any highlights for you personally along the way? Anything that um, you know, if you think back for whatever reason, was a little bit of a standout for you, whether it was just, um, you know, a particular year and a particular vintage that, um, you know, you were particularly excited by or, or, or proud of or, you know, just, just for whatever reason sits in your memory or even something that, um, you know, some sort of event that happened and you think, oh, well, that was quite... Um, well, um, yeah, a couple of things come up, I suppose, the from a... Um, from a Ripon point of view, the year 2012, we celebrated 100 years on the land and 30 mm. years of wine growing. And uh, a couple of years after that, when those 2012's Pinot Noirs were released, we did a, uh, a 21, 22-year vertical, I think it was, and 
just looking back over that and we sort of a lot of our family and friends and some of our trade um uh, partners and, and and acquaintances and friends as well, almost family themselves, and along with our team and and um, some of the white, local wine growers that have um, you know been cellar hands or worked here over, over that time um, were there as well, and it was just a lovely, lovely weekend that we spent together and mm. and had a tasted all these wines going back that time and the, to see them still intact and and. Um, and reflective of that of that time and that era was just really special. And to do that as a as a crew was, um, yeah, uh, it, it basically tells the story through through wine, through through liquid um, yeah. as a liquid informant, if you like. And that was it was really special. I think the other thing from a regional point of view um, was last October. Maybe it was the October before. No, October before last. Sorry, like 2000, uh, 2017. Um, we took Central Otago back to Burgundy um, and that was a we in 2006 Sophie, Conf, Sophie Confirant and I part of my um, journey was spending four years in, in Burgundy and studying and working over there to learn my craft and made a lot of close friends and of, of families over there and, and, uh, and in 2006 we started an exchange between Sophie well between Central Otago and, and Burgundy um, that was uh, at the heart of it was between um, the Confron families and our, and our family. It, obviously, it grew and has um, and evolved over time to to include a lot of other things as well besides just the the pure exchange. But a lot of um, uh, stagiaires and interns have gone in both directions over that time. I think almost a hundred now. <clears throat> and perhaps if you consider that all of those people would have touched maybe I don't know four or five people each and um, on either on either side, you've really a massive cultural sort of exchange was happening has happened over that time, and it kind of felt like I mean, like a cultural seed, if you like, started out with the Benedictines and the the, the Cistercians, of sort of this idea of this notion of terroir, and sort of went all around the world. It went to lots of different places. It went to you know Oregon and um, different parts here in New Zealand. It came to Central Otago and has propagated and is is um, has found purchase in this land and and uh, and at the maturity of those vines when those vines became sort of 25 30 year old vines and we sort of started to under started to get a mature more decent understanding of our own terroir we took that back to Burgundy to give that you know doff our hats really to to the culture that had that had started that whole ideal and all that notion and. Uh, it, there was a lot of tastings and some in, in the Chambre du Roi at the Hospice de Bonne and the, the, the Hominy Conti. We did a, an event there and a big sort of barbecue mishwia, like a pig on a spit, up in the fo- in this forest as well. More Kiwi styles there. But the whole weekend culminated in the in the in this um, beautiful spiritual moment of um, being inside the Abbey de Saint Vivant, which is a ruin of where the notion of terroir first started out was first developed and with the Benedictine um, uh, Catholic order. And we went down into these cellars and, and, um, and toasted to the, to the spirits and the ghosts that were perhaps in the walls of that, of that cellar. And we, we sung Pokera Kiriana um, there as a, 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 just a, uh, you know, to, to bring back a, a, our culture. And I guess Pokera Kiriana talks about a place a, a love, at least, it could be of a person, but of a place across an ocean or, or, or in another place, and and uh, and and sung that to 
showed them a part of our culture here in oh, New Zealand, and yeah, it was it was a really beautiful moment. Yeah, no, no, that would have been, and um, you know, it just makes me think, you know, in the, in the thirty odd years um, that you've been. Um, working the land there and producing um and already you've you've got you know stories and history um just how um amplified that is um for these other places where they've been doing it for hundreds of years you know and you sort of appreciate um what that actually means um to you know to a whole nother a whole nother level or a whole nother um you know depth of um having that whole yeah. sort of depth of history and um yeah you know what's what is special about that that especially about the exchange is that it's always had this balance between um between what we can learn from each other it's it would be very easy for new zealanders to um think that you know it's kind of one way that we go over there and there's this tradition that we can access and we can bring back but what that what that time of tradition is 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 really put a lot of socio political overlays and of you know appellation systems and now a UNESCO World Heritage Site and and um uh, and, and and just overlays and o- upon overlays of of um, structure around how they are to grow grow wine and they've lost a sense of community they've also lost a sense of um, freedom um, to choose of, of how they might like to make their wine or express a certain site. And and here we have this notion of, of Turanga Waiwai, uh, uh, you know, a place to stand. Is, it's how it's, it's almost Tewa flipped on its head, or at least um, if Tewa is about how a, um, a site um, can um, inform a um, living tissue, and so its fruit will um, reflect that site. Um, so you know, there's a somewhereness in a, in a wine. Uh, Turanga Waiwai is about um, how um, a site or or a mountain or a place informs humans and human culture, and how how we how we may be um, subject to to our environment, um, whether it's geological or geographical or even you know our landform and climate and everything and how that informs us as, as humans, and we have the freedom. To, to explore that and explore how that might influence us, uh, influence our craft, um, and so we we've always we've we've been able to share that with them, and and share that sense of freedom and openness as well. And so, uh, as much as we feel that we can we can gain from from all of those years of, um, you know, those millennia of of culture that they have. Our freshness and our freedom, and and our and our own um, indigenous culture, are things that we shouldn't um, that, that we have to value as well. Mm. No, well said. No, well said. Yes. No, I think that's um, that's a really great point. Um, well, we've um, we've uh, clocked over the 30, 30 minutes, and um, <laughs> it's been uh, it's been really it's been really good, Nick. Thank you. And um, we always finish on the question of um, if you could have. Um, any glass of wine with uh, anyone um, at any place, um, what do you think that might be? And, um, you know, as a lot of people have said to me, well, it's a bit hard picking one. Uh, <laughs> and then yeah. There may be many, um, but what would one of them, what would one of them be? Um, I don't know. I think um, Rolf um, never saw... I, I think he saw the just the beginnings of what was possible here um, as a region and as a, as a vineyard as as Ripon and um, he never he didn't 
meet all of the um of, of his uh, grandchildren and and uh and I don't think he ever really saw um Tinkersfield um he he Tinkersfield is the name the vineyard that's named after him it's Tink was um his his nickname at school and and what it's become in in um in New Zealand viticulture is is amazing and and he knew it as a field well belong before it was a vineyard and I don't know I think so Tinkersfield 2015 was just given this amazing accolade in, in New Zealand and and um, and really reflects his belief or you know um, um, his belief in that in that field. So probably I don't know trying to have a glass with him maybe when he was a young nipper when he was only just coming up with that idea you know of maybe as a as a young man to share a glass of Tinkersfield or what it was to become and what it means for New Zealand viticulture. And if I was allowed to um, bring my wife and, and some of and his grandchildren along as well, that would be really special to, yeah. to, yeah. Um, to, 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 to share that with him. Yeah, nice. Yeah, for him to have a, uh, a drink of the future. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Very good. Hey, um, thanks, Nick. We um, certainly appreciate that. It's been great. Pleasure. All righty. Thanks, Boris. Okay. Cheers. Bye for now. Enjoy the rest of the day. See ya. Bye. You've been listening to the New Zealand Wine Podcast, and we've been speaking with Nick Mills from Ripon in Wanaka in the central Otago of New Zealand. If you'd like to find out more about Ripon, you can look them up online, ripon.co.nz. Be sure to have a listen to some of the other great NZ Wine podcasts and also check out podcast.nz where there are some other interesting podcasts for you to listen to such as the Māori Initiatives, uh, NZ Tech Podcast and the Fearless Kitchen. You can also follow us on Instagram, NZ Wine Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We look forward to your company again very shortly. Hey, kōnā mai. Bye for now. <laughs>